0: Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Alex Kanibos, and this is Political Theory 101.
1: So today on Political Theory 101, we're going to be talking about Christian Wolff. Christian Wolff was born in 1679, in what is now Poland. He completed his dissertation in 1703. An examiner sent it to Leibniz, and Wolff corresponded with Leibniz until Leibniz died in 1716. With help from Leibniz, Wolff got an academic post in 1707. He went on to publish many academic textbooks in German. heavily influenced not just 18th-century German philosophy, but the German language as a whole, which had never really previously been considered a a properly philosophical or theoretical language. As he became more popular, Wolff asserted the independence of philosophy from theology. So if you think of the old-fashioned university, there's philosophy and then there's theology. And theology was considered the more serious subject, the subject that was ultimately supreme and superior to philosophy. Wolf worked as a philosopher, and he increasingly over the course of his career refused to defer to the theologians. This, of course, bred resentment among the theologians in Prussia, who grew to despise him. In 1721, Wolfe delivered a lecture defending the reasonableness of Confucian moral philosophy. He argued that the Confucians succeeded in producing a plausible account of morality without appeal to theology. In the course of this lecture, he did project many of his own ideas onto Confucius. It's not necessarily Uh, An amazing lecture insofar as the interpretation of Confucius is concerned. But what really makes it stick out is this assertion that without recourse to Christian theology, the Confucians were able to have a perfectly plausible moral system. And that uh, subversion of the supremacy of theology is what's really significant about the talk. The theologians were incensed by Wolff's impiety, and they petitioned the king of Prussia Frederick Wilhelm I, to do something about it. In 1723, the king issued an edict removing Wolf from his position and expelling him from Prussia. If Wolf refused to leave within 48 hours, he was to be hung. Wolf received word of the edict four days after it was issued, which meant the deadline was already long past. He left Prussia in a rush. He did manage to get out, and once out, the exile only contributed to Wolff's reputation. It made him cool and put him in even higher demand outside of Prussia. He ended up at the University of Marburg in a West German state called Hesse. While at Marburg, Wolff put many of his texts into Latin, further increasing the reach of his ideas outside the German-speaking world. In the 1730s, the king of Prussia tried to persuade Wolf to return, but he refused to come back until Frederick Wilhelm I died. Only when the old king was dead and succeeded by his son, Frederick II, did Wolf finally agree to come home. He became vice chancellor of his old university in 1740 and remained there until his death in 1754. So what was Wolf on about? Well, to start... For Wolf, it's impossible to affirm and deny a statement at the same time. So for Wolf, something has being if it is possible, and it is possible if it does not imply anything contradictory. Things that exist in the world are a subset of what's possible. They are specific instances of being. Now... Most of Wolf's philosophical schema can be justified in relation to other elements of the schema, but this principle of contradiction cannot be formally demonstrated. It's a bedrock principle that Wolf builds everything else on top of. The closest Wolf comes to offering a defense of it is to suggest that we cannot affirm and deny our own existence at the same time. Relatedly, Wolf argues that a nothing, cannot be a something without a contradiction, so everything that exists must have some reason for existing, since if a something relied upon a nothing, that would be to treat the nothing as if it were a something. This means that for Wolf, there must be reasons why human beings are as they are, and in finding these reasons, we are able to give an account of human nature. Wolf suggests that human beings have an essence— and then from that essence, we can derive a set of universal human attributes. This account will tell us what sort of humans are possible. Specific existing individuals will then be instances of this possibility. And uh, they will express different modes of the human. Now, these modes include even things like being alive as opposed to being dead. Since it is possible for human beings to be either alive or dead, the difference between the living and the dead is accounted for by mode, not by essence or by attributes. So anything that varies, anything that's contingent, is not part of the essence, it's it's a mode. Insofar as different people come into existence and those people change across time, this variation is to be understood through mode and not by appeal to essence. But essence is a core aspect of, of how Wolf defines human beings in the first place as beings that are possible. Now, for Wolf, we can learn about the essence of the human soul through two kinds of psychology. Empirical psychology consists of our observations concerning the workings of our minds, rational psychology involves the use of reason. To draw out implications of the observations arrived at through empirical psychology. We can therefore observe empirically that some actions tend to perfect us and to perfect others, while other actions tend toward our imperfection and the imperfection of others. We make these empirical observations by noticing which actions tend to produce pleasure and which tend to produce displeasure. This displeasure includes pain but it also seems to include other sensations, such as disgust. We're really talking about positive and negative sensations here, not pleasure and pain in a reductive, narrow sense. In this way, Wolff argues that our emotions track perfection. We are then able to use reason to draw further inferences from these emotions. This produces a moral philosophy that is not entirely dissimilar to British utilitarianism of a similar vintage. It relies on the idea that we can intuitively understand perfection, that our moral intuitions reliably track it. If they didn't reliably track it, what would be the reason we have these moral intuitions in the first place? For Wolf, there has to be a reason we have these feelings. We cannot have them for no reason. If we did, that would be to treat a nothing as if it were a something. And that would be to violate the principle of non-contradiction. wolf extends this argument not just to our moral intuitions, but to our psychology in general. Our behaviors must have reasons. This leads him to deny that free will involves any capacity to act contrary to our determining motivations. Those motivations must have reasons. Instead, Wolf says that a free act is just an act that proceeds from an understanding of perfection. That understanding of perfection generates a determining motivation that results in the act. For Wolf, an act is free insofar as it proceeds from certain modes of cognition rather than through a will that can act independently of the cognitive process. So, when soldiers desert their post, it is not the case that they could have willed themselves not to desert. Instead, desertion comes from our motivations, motivations that we must have for a reason. It can't come from nothing. So soldiers who desert their posts, therefore, do so for a reason. This, Wolfe's enemies argued, amounted to a defense of desertion. Worse, it verged upon an incitement to desert. This is the argument that convinced the king of Prussia to expel Wolfe in 1723. It also implies that rebellions and civil wars happen for reasons. Thomas Jefferson loved that. His copy of Wolfe's Institutes of the Law of Nature and Nations is well-worn and full of underlined passages. But while rebellions happen for reasons, that does not mean rebels have a moral right to rebel. Wolfe heavily qualifies the right of rebellion, reserving it only for cases in which the sovereign explicitly usurps powers that the Constitution explicitly withholds. As we might expect, for Wolfe, the state exists to contribute to our perfection, and international law exists to facilitate the work of states. Under international law, all states are equal. This has major consequences. As Wolfe puts it, since no nation can assume for itself the functions of a judge, and consequently cannot pronounce upon the justice of the war. Although by natural law a war cannot be just on both sides, since nevertheless each of the belligerents claims that it has just cause of war, each must be allowed to follow its own opinion. Consequently, by the voluntary law of nations, the war must be considered as just on either side. This may sound somewhat relativist, but for Wolfe, We know this is the right view to have because we can empirically observe that when states believe that the war is just for them alone, they feel entitled to escalate the violence and commit atrocities. If instead, the belligerents recognize one another as equals, they will fight the war in a more moderate way. And by presupposing the belligerents are equal, we also make it much harder for just war theory to be weaponized to justify war. If we operate from the assumption that both sides in the war have just as good a claim on the war being just as one another, this uh, greatly limits the degree to which we can demonize or dehumanize enemies in war. So that's what I came away from in my reading. I would love to hear what stood out to Alex as he looked through some of Christian Wolff's work. So, Alex what stood out
0: um maybe a stereotype of the enlightenment
1: stereotype of the enlightenment what would the stereotype of the enlightenment be um
0: conceptual grids so or just straight line thinking yeah if so you-
1: one question you could ask here is is this principle of non-contradiction hostile to something like, say, dialectical thinking?
0: Well, you can write the dialectic in the form of analytic philosophy, couldn't you? Quite clear steps, and then progression.
1: Well, this depends on how you conceive of dialectic, right? If a dialectic is that you have, say, a, a contradiction that is operating in society, say you have uh, you know, a, a social structure that is contradictory in nature, that you have, say, uh, a need for everybody in society to work a job to obtain the means of subsistence, right? But you have an economy which is, generating greater and greater levels of industrialization and automation. So in point of practice, you don't need everybody to work. And it is, in fact, inefficient uh, for everybody to work. So while everybody needs to get a job to obtain the means of subsistence, the society as a whole needs to move on from employing everybody to continue to increase in its productive capacity, right? You might frame something like that as a contradiction, the social structure requires something which it also uh, must do away with at the same time. It relies in one sense on something it must get rid of. Now, I don't think that that kind of contradiction is the same as the type of
0: contradiction that Wolf is talking about. I think Wolf means the contradiction within every statement. But maybe the contradiction between survival and abundance is many steps in the argument. So in order to accept that contradiction, you would have to accept a chain of premises before that. Well, I think in the case of a, of a
1: sort of Marxist contradiction, generally you don't even have to philosophically cognize it. You know, There's that old Hegel line about the owl of Minerva uh, you know, only being heard uh, long after. Uh, everything is is done and over with. By the time you can philosophically discuss something and walk through all of the premises and all of the arguments, usually the condition that you're describing is already past. It's because you've been in the condition for a while or you experienced the condition in the past that you're able to describe it in this analytic and uh, philosophically precise way. right? Like for instance, when you have some major news event, like say uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, in the immediate aftermath of that conflict, it's not going to be possible to give a, a full philosophical account of the meaning of the conflict and where it fits in, say, uh, history or where it fits in uh, you know, different kinds of uh, causal mechanisms. You won't be able to give a full account of that until you've experienced it and the discussions surrounding it and the consequences of it for long enough that it becomes evident to you what the consequences are, The human brain is only... Uh, you know, so able to deal with these things in such a way that it can actually get out ahead of them and anticipate ex ante what's going to happen. And even people who are reasonably good at making short-term and medium-term predictions about world events, you know, struggle in practice to be right you know, very often. Even people who are very good at making predictions relative to the ordinary person still get an awful, awful lot wrong when you talk about complex human systems. So uh, when we're talking about an argument, we maybe a contradiction in an argument is, I think, something different from a contradiction in society or a contradiction in the social structure. So I don't think it's obvious or necessarily the case that this principle of contradiction couldn't fit with uh, some more dialectical way of thinking. At the same time, uh, you know I, I could also see why people would would find this a little bit overly linear. Kant, of course, you know, calls Wolf a dogmatist it it can have this sense of being a little bit rigid so far as it proceeds from you know, certain core claims like this principle of contradiction and then builds up directly from those claims. Uh, I think that uh, you know there's also a question about, the concept of nothing here. So when Wolf says that something can't rely on a nothing, there is an assumption here that something has to rely on something, that everything has to rely on something else, uh, which is implied by this claim that a something can't rely on a nothing, if a something can't rely on a nothing, then it has to rely on a something. But this this kind of builds in this assumption of reliance as a necessary relationship that all things must have. All things must rely on something, and therefore that came you before can't it. posit anything as freestanding. Right, right, and you see this in his account of the psych, uh, psychology of the soul, where he'll say that rational psychology relies on empirical psychology and empirical psychology relies on rational psychology. And this starts to sound quite a bit like what the analytic uh, philosophers call reflective equilibrium. This idea that as long as you don't have a contradiction, all of your claims can rely on other claims you've made. So you have a web of claims and no one of the claims is uh, doing the bulk of the work. All of these claims feed into each other. The difficulty is that The principle of contradiction still has to rest as a foundation for all of this stuff. It's like the uh, tree trunk that all of this has to sit on. Now, the principle of contradiction says you can have uh, claims that are true at one time and false at another time. They just can't be true and false at the same time. So you could have something like, say, a yin and yang kind of theory which suggests that at some moments you should pay more attention to one side of a coin and at other moments you should pay more attention to a different side of a coin. So you can have productive tensions where at different points you lean on different sides of the tension.
0: Well, there's a middle point between Once time is
1: brought in. Yeah, the question is, for the principle of contradiction to be rejected, it has to be the case that at the very same time the same claim is both true and false. Right. Is that what dialectic And it's interesting how. So I think if you were to say, you know, dialectic has to be something that that occurs in argument, and it has to occur through there being a contradiction in the argument where a claim is simultaneously true and false, is actually true and false, not just uh, appears true and false, or, uh, or is vague or unclear such that you can't say whether it's true or false? And if we come back to the just war argument, right? When Wolff says that the two sides will both think that they're just, he is not saying that it is literally the case that the war is both just and not just for each side. Rather, he's saying that what we have observed empirically is that if we act as if one of the sides is just, This will lead to a war which is in many senses less just. So therefore, we have to, in some ways, suspend the ordinary rules for thinking here. Because if we follow the ordinary rules for thinking, we'll have trouble. And so he appeals to to the ordinary rules to create an exception to the ordinary rules where you can act as if a claim is both true and false at the same time. You can act as if each side is just. Insofar as you must act as if each side is entitled to follow its own opinion. At the same time, you also must act as if neither side is just, as if both sides could be mistaken. And that evens things out and creates an environment where nobody feels very confident being unnecessarily violent or unnecessarily destructive. And to bring this back to recent events in Israel-Palestine, we can certainly see the consequences there of thinking in terms of one side being all just and the other side being not just at all. The people who are thinking in that way from either direction are more willing to countenance more extreme violence because they're thinking in that way. Whereas the people who think that both sides are entitled to think of, their, of themselves as just or neither side is entitled to think of itself as just, the people with those kinds of views are generally more critical of all of the violence.
0: What, just that pacifist tendencies come when you can't decide which side to pick? Not, not necessarily pacifist,
1: but greater level of restraint, right? So for instance, let's say that you are a leader in Hamas or in uh, the Israeli state. If you think that you're just and your opponent is not just, then uh, you may think that because of this, you can take very extraordinary measures to get rid of the, the evil, unjust enemy, right? But if you think that you're just, but you also can understand how the enemy from its point of view thinks that it's just, and you recognize that you and the enemy are on equal footing, that your claims to, to being right are equally valid in terms of international law, because international law must treat each party to the conflict as equal, and you respect international law then you would show a great deal of restraint even though you think you're right because in view of international law you are equal and therefore your claims to being right are equal and you follow international law you would show restraint and this would give international law a purpose insofar as we follow international law international law doesn't exist to say This party to the conflict is right, and this party is wrong, and therefore the party that's right may use unlimited force, and the party that's wrong is unjust to do anything at all. Instead, international law would be used to say, you each have a potentially valid claim about who's right that international law can't adjudicate because all of the states in international law are equal, and there is no judge for international law. And to posit that there can be a judge is to fundamentally misunderstand what international law is. To posit some kind of body like the International Criminal Court or the the United Nations that would be able to judge which states were right and which states were wrong would fundamentally misunderstand the character of international law, which is that it's... uh, a law which is agreed to by a body of equal states. It's not a set of states sitting underneath some other kind of world state or polity that would have the legitimate authority to make a judgment, right? All of those international bodies are international rather than global bodies. They're places where states get together on equal terms to talk. They're not places where uh, states submit to a single judge that decides who's right. If you think about, say, ancient Persia, you know, Achaemenid Persia. In Achaemenid Persia, there's a king of kings. And if the kings don't agree with each other, they submit petitions to the king of kings and the king of kings judges who's right in the dispute. And because the king of kings judges, the kings can't uh, fight wars with one another. They have no reason to fight wars with one another because when they get into a dispute, they bring their views to the king of kings, the king of Persia, and the king of Persia decides who to uh, favor or disfavor or what kind of arrangement to make, right? International law doesn't work like the Persian Empire. It is a set of states that are meant uh, to be equal to one another, or at least that's Wolf's assumption. So I think it has interesting implications because in international law, we sometimes act like international law is a body of states, but other times we act as if there is some international body or figure that can act like the, the Persian king of kings that can issue judgments. And maybe some of us wish that we lived in that kind of system. Some of us wish we had something like a Persian king of kings. And there's arguments for that kind of system. Certainly, you know Persian political theorists could tell you about all the peace it generates.
0: Wolf did say that both seem to exist at the same time. You have the supreme state which is in the equal international law system and then you have the lord over the vassal and it's quite different i guess because the lord celebrates injuring other states the supreme state says no but yeah also you can you can say the supreme state acts a bit like a lord because they force people to or states to give a minimum when they're not when they're in need so they, there is a coercive, central, single judge who decides, basically.
1: Well, if there is a coercive, central judge who decides, then that judge could sit there and decide who, in a war, is just and who's not just. Uh, the, the interesting thing that Wolf does when it comes to war is that he
0: says that there is nobody who can do that. But a state can assume, maybe, I think a state and its neighbor could. Well,
1: if a state and its neighbor both uh, recognize international law and abide by international law, then they will understand that while they of course think they are right and the other side is wrong, in the view of international law, they're equal parties in the conflict. And therefore, if they want to fight the war in a way that accords with international law, they have to show restraint on the basis that international law recognizes not just their claim to justice, but also the claim of the adversary. And therefore, they can't treat the adversary as as demonic or as fundamentally evil. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't somebody who's right. For Wolf, that doesn't mean that it's not the case that we, we couldn't find on a purely philosophical level that one of the sides is right and one of the sides is wrong. It's just that for Wolf, because there is no one in position to make that judgment internationally, if we proceed from our own beliefs about who's right and wrong, this will often result in a just war theory that can easily be used to justify terrible atrocities. Because it will often be the case that people will argue that they're right and that other people are wrong and that philosophy will get twisted to these purposes and malignantly used and i think this is a very prescient observation from wolf and it's it's probably my favorite part of everything that i read
0: uh, in relation to him what how philosophy can become evil Well, that that it's
1: necessary to suspend this thinking process. Wolf, who is so committed to this idea of, as you say, he's thought of as this kind of paradigmatic enlightenment thinker for whom everything relies on something else. You could put all of your, your ducks in a row. For somebody like that to go, ah, but when we start talking about just war, if we keep thinking like that, it's going to kill a lot of people and cause a lot of trouble. And therefore, we have to suspend our thinking And we can't think in that in the normal way, the way that Wolf himself considers the philosophically good, correct, just way. Because in this specific instance, if we think that way, it will produce a catastrophe. And this is why for Wolf, international law is part of voluntary law rather than natural law. It is an agreement to suspend aspects of natural law for the purposes of Achieving, uh, to a, a greater degree, perfection. And this is that very consequentialist aspect of all of this, because Wolf is ultimately, in ethics, committed to perfection, to a notion of the good, right? That commitment means that he will suspend his thinking process if the thinking process leads to a conclusion that it leads to imperfection. Even if the process is otherwise good. So you could use the ordinary kind of process that Wolf uses to try to say who's just and who's not just. And Wolf implies that there is a, an answer to that question. It's not as if there is no answer or if uh, you know it genuinely is a, a relativist situation. Just because there's no one who can judge doesn't mean there isn't a truth about the matter. There's a truth about the matter. It's just that the truth in this instance is not useful because we aren't going to be able to arrive at a consensus about the truth. The fact that there's a war suggests that there's so much disagreement that a consensus about who is just is going to be impossible, right? So even though there's a truth of the matter, you still can't arrive at a consensus. And therefore, you ought to act as if the truth can't be known. Not because it can be known, but because that will lead to more perfection and that will ultimately be better. <laughs> well, See what I mean?
0: Are you saying that if it if it can be known, you have to prove it against the adversary? Whereas if it if it can't be, then it's purely intrinsic. Each person does it for themselves.
1: And if you could prove it against the adversary, there wouldn't be a need for a war in the first place. If you could convince the adversary that you're cause is just and their cause isn't just, with an argument, then war wouldn't happen.
0: That does remind of when he talks about what is philosophy, it's about demonstrating the claim without refuting the negative directly, you do it indirectly in order to remove emotions or glory or talking about errors.
1: Yes, although there is a a remarkably substantial role for sentiment in this theory. You know, insofar as we get a lot of instances in which we are allowed to to look at how things make us feel and whether because for Wolf, what tends toward perfection or imperfection is indicated to us by how we feel about it. There's a very intuistic aspect to this. So it's not the kind of uh, you know, rejection of all of the emotions that we might associate with, say, more stoic influenced enlightenment thought. Uh, it's more sentimental in a way that we might, uh, you'll see as a little bit more similar to something like a, you know, a Bentham.
0: Well, he says that psychology has two dimensions, cognitive and appetitive. And then the appetite is the goodness and the cognitive is the truth. So good and evil is more of a feeling thing. But, uh, yeah. Right. So you
1: contrast that with, say, ancient theorists for whom desire is something to be suspicious of, and our feelings are things to be suspicious of because they come from the body. Here we have a, a much uh, more optimistic view, which stems from this idea that everything that we feel has to be felt for a reason. And so the emotions and sentiments can't even be... Uh, you know, certainly can't be assumed to be evil or bad in and of themselves, uh, much less uh, even treated with the level of suspicion that we typically
0: see from, say, Platonists or Aristotelians. But he does say ultimately philosophy appeals to the mind. So if you give a sense, it hardly disturbs your emotions and it doesn't go against public life. It doesn't cause disturbance in general. So it's very cooling and right,
1: yeah. And this is because for him, the rational psychology, the psychology that is to do with, with philosophizing is itself derived from the empirical. Since it's derived from the way we we feel ordinarily anyway, how can it be antagonistic to our ordinary feelings? And so how can someone say that philosophy is a way of trying to turn people against ordinary common sense or or their ordinary sentiments. Rather, it's a way of of explaining or
0: proving what we already know on some level to be true. Although I think it goes beyond ordinary thinking, something to do with how much...
1: Yes, and in the course of it, we'll have further insights that we couldn't have if we just stayed at the ordinary level. But those insights, because they're built on our senses and they're built on our feelings, don't contradict those things. There are rather further insights we can get if we philosophically examine the things that come out of the sensory
0: yeah I think once you're able to well he, he describes it as the will being the feelings and then the intellect being the cognitive and you if you're thinking ordinarily then your will will command your cognitive your intellect but if you can do better then your intellect can command your will yes and this comes about you know what
1: what he says a free action is is just an action that where the motivation was produced by an understanding of what tends toward perfection right instead of the motivation coming from something else it comes from understanding so instead of just starting with our initial motivation we empirically examine our motivations then we rationally deduce things from our experiences and motivations. This leads us to an understanding of what leads to perfection. And then once we understand what leads to perfection, that gives us fresh motivations that are different potentially from those we started with, but are themselves derived from those we started with and therefore not in contradiction with them, but rather are a refined iteration of them. Of course, if you operate from a different point of view and you hold the stuff we start with to be much more suspect, then you can't have this, this nice little tree that you build up from the principle of non-contradiction through all of our uh, feelings and thoughts. And this is, I think, the, the difficult thing. If you don't think that all of our feelings and intuitions are with us for reasons, uh, because you think that the way in which he handles the concept of nothing is not quite right, then the theory isn't going to work. You now, If something can come from a nothing, or maybe things don't have to come from other things, maybe things can just exist as brute facts, if you have something like that in your theory, then the rest of this isn't going to go through neatly. But even so, I do think that some of the claims he makes about just war should strike us as uh, you know, interesting, even if we don't share all of the metaphysics and all of the particular rules of logic that uh, Wolf gravitated toward. You know, this idea that sometimes your ordinary kind of uh, way of trying to make moral judgments will itself be morally counterproductive. I think that's a really incisive thought. And I think we see this in international politics all the time where people are focused on judging who is good and who's bad, who's right, who's wrong, who's doing the worst stuff and who's justified in doing bad stuff because somebody else is doing worse stuff. That way of thinking leads to so much harm because so many people become convinced that they're fighting the devil by thinking in that way. When really they're fighting other human beings who understand the world just a bit differently from them. In most cases. I'm not going to make an absolutist claim here. But most of the time, when we're having a conflict, it isn't the case that somebody's fighting the devil. Most of the time, it's a bad misunderstanding or a sharp disagreement about how to live that we've just not been able to resolve that is important enough to the people participating in it, that they're willing to put lives on the line over it. That they'd rather be dead than uh, live in the way that the other side wants them to live. You know, they'd rather be, uh, be killed than do what the other side is demanding that they do. And if both sides feel that way about something, then you can have a war. But generally, when, when human beings have that kind of sharp disagreement, it doesn't come from anybody being evil. It just comes from very different views about what matters. And often you're looking at the same elephant from very different vantage points.
0: The same elephant meaning they still want to attain their end of perfection, so to be safe and happy. But different sides meaning, what, just that slightly different is enough to remove them? Or completely different angles, like cultural difference?
1: Yeah, that they're conceptualizing the good or perfection or what leads to a happy life in very different ways, often because they're viewing it from very different vantage points, from very different contexts. They've lived very different lives in very different situations. They come from different economic classes or they follow different religions, different paths, different methods. You know, they live in very different parts of the world that invite you to view things in very different ways. I think most of the time that That is what's going on. And Wolf's point that as much as you, you from your own point of view, may think that you understand morally what's going on, by the time we've gotten into a war, we've reached a point where these arguments, they don't work. If they worked, we wouldn't have gotten this far. And at that point, there's a need to limit the killing and the pain and the suffering that will be felt as a consequence of the war. And the only way you can do that is to to some degree back away from your own moral certitude about the conflict, back away from the conviction that you are all good and and the other side's all bad. And you genuinely look at at the conflict as as something that you'd love to be able to bring it into as soon as you can. And what negotiation, peace negotiation is, is an attempt to find some way of getting back to a point where... The two sides can talk about a world they can both live with and they can both live in. And war is is killing and violence until you reach a point where both sides can't imagine a world that they can stand. And even if one of those sides has been you know, forced into imagining it by really looking at the abyss and looking at what the war will do to them if they continue to fight it. You know, that's the horrible thing about war. War ultimately forces somebody to give up on their vision of what's good to survive. It reduces somebody to that position of, of conquered. And if you really think about both sides in a war as, as genuinely interested in something, Do you think you'd ha- that yeah. potentially as value? It's very sad.
0: At that point, if there's such a big disagreement, is it almost less f- funny to go to maybe funny levels of abstraction, so the distinction between ontology and cosmology, so being in general versus the being of the world whole, so a big vision of being a narrow vision of being, just so that people can start thinking identically again and using the yeah ordering their actions
1: well, I think. Philosophy, you know, sometimes it gets people focus on the way in which philosophy is coercive. You know, philosophy is a way of trying to get somebody else to think the way you think and not just to convince you of the same proposition, but to get you to think in the same way, right? That's part of the point of of doing a proof or of, of showing your work philosophically. It, because your goal is not just to get someone to agree with you, but to get someone to agree with you for the right reasons and in the right way. So in one sense, philosophy is very intellectually, you know, linguistically, culturally coercive, because it is this attempt to not just create agreement, but to create an agreement that goes all the way down into these, into the details of things, of, of one's worldview. Uh, at the same time... You know, we can also think of this as a way of trying to prevent war and conflict, because if our positions, our disagreements are in some way within a phylum, if they're underneath a set of agreements, then that makes it less likely that those disagreements will spill out into something that we can't resolve with discussion. So sometimes by you know, limiting the different ways we can talk about things, we make it harder to get into such a heavy level of conflict that we fight. But also, in the act of limiting, we necessarily have to drive out different ways of thinking and being that are valuable to people, and that also involves very often fighting and conflict. So often the things that you do to create peace are coercive and warlike, and, and often the things that you do, uh, you, we fight wars for peace and we and we wage peace for
0: wars. I saw that if it became customary to, say, harm hostages or yeah, to start retaliating once you've been attacked, then that custom must enter the law of nations. Maybe because it just proves how unjust it is. I don't know why. But then other people would have to abide by it. Is that a way of self-correcting the system? So just adopt bad behavior on purpose. Well. I think part of what has gone wrong today is that
1: international law in trying to be something like the Persian king of kings system has come to be perceived by so many people in so many parts of the world as rigged against them and their way of of living and the things that they value and care about. And that's because that, that king of kings, that judge, is always... A representative of the most powerful states and the and the richest and most powerful people. It's, it's always some Western liberal judge, some American or British judge. It's uh, never a judge who would really sympathize with the other values that other people in other parts of the world care about. So in trying to Make an international law where they're actually as a judge, what we do is is we ultimately discredit international law. we cause people to feel that international law is rigged against them and what they care about, and this over time creates a situation where those people feel that if they play by the rules and they follow international law, they will just be at a disadvantage. If international law is rigged against them, then by following it they will only Put themselves in greater danger and put themselves in situations where they will be destroyed or where their way of, of living or their values will be destroyed. And this is the other tricky thing about international law. Uh, to have international law, you have to have some level of agreement on what kind of stuff you're allowed to do. And there are you know, parts where Wolf talks about, well, what if you have somebody who has no regard for international law and won't follow it? Well. If you have someone who has no regard for international law and won't follow it, then you could potentially band together all of the law-abiding states to do something about it. And his example, because this is several hundred years ago, his examples are are things like the Huns or the Mongols, people who don't have any concept of of law, uh, who will not follow any kind of international law, who aren't able to follow it because they have no tradition of that kind of law. But when you talk about international law today, people often suggest that in the world today, there are people who are like the Huns or who are like the Mongols, who don't have a concept of law or can't follow international law, who are barbaric or uncivilized or what have you. But nobody's like this anymore. We don't actually have people who don't have a concept of law now. What we have is many people in many different parts of the world who sharply disagree with each other about what the character of the law should be. You know, there's no country in the world, no territory in the world that isn't able to understand what the law means because they've been you know, riding around on the step and none of the leaders can read. You know, we don't have that. That's not what we're talking about these days. And yet very often, in part to justify exacting terrible revenges upon people, the argument is made that uh, that different people in different parts of the world are like the Huns or are like the the Mongols, that they have no regard for, for law. Uh, and that's just not true. You know, everybody, even, even uh, you know, Osama bin Laden could write. And he did write. He was able to understand. He just very, very sharply disagreed and had a very different view. And, uh, and the trouble is that when we have that, we, our system of international law is not really able to deal with that. And this collapse in the functionality of international law is, I think, leading to a world where just nobody pays any attention to it and it has no power to restrain anybody anymore, really. And less and less power all the time on any side.
0: But people still want to have the rotating seat. They want to form cliques.
1: Well, yeah, I think people still care about... Status to some degree that is conferred by, say, you know having a seat on the security council or is conferred by hosting the Olympics or you know, there's still some interest in this, especially among the the type of people who choose to go into this line of work, you know, people who want to be part of international institutions, who want to be part of the UN or the IMF or the World Bank or the WTO—they you know, believe that these institutions can still serve a purpose, and I, I think they do still serve some purpose. But that purpose is no longer promoting cooperation among states, you know, all viewed on, on equal terms. If that was ever the goal, and, I, and you can argue it was never the goal—that really, all of these institutions were created as ways of projecting, uh, you know, the uh, the power of the states that were the victors at the end of World War II. Uh, but you know certainly now it's, it's become very difficult to persuade people in many parts of the world that these institutions are really equally concerned about them or their interests. And as that happens, more and more uh, people are going to pay less attention to these institutions and uh, the things that they, they say and do. And it's going to result in a world that's that is much more brutal. These institutions did have restraining effects to a significant degree, because you at least had uh, some level of belief that the institutions really were ways of trying to uh, bring states together on equal terms. And I think at this point, you know, part of why the uh, you know the post-colonial movement, you know, the the movement to end. Uh, the imperial empires you know, could succeed is that populations in those states believed that independence would accomplish something. They believed that they would have independent states, that those states would be able to uh, have equal standing in these kinds of organizations, that these organizations would be as responsive to them. You know, a significant set of, of people believed on some level that, uh, that that was possible, that it was possible that you could have international organizations that treated the newly created states as equals. And very quickly, it became clear that they weren't going to do that. And it's only gotten more and more clear and more obvious over time that these organizations and institutions aren't going to treat the uh, post-colonial states as, as equals to the states that uh, that used to govern them. And there is this question of, you know if you, if you don't actually get all the rights that a state has if you aren't really treated as a fully equal state in all the relevant
0: senses, did you really get independence? Well, you got self-sufficiency. And, yeah. you, you know, the, the nation is not necessarily a moral person. Is not the same as the nation of physical individuals and their property. So you can be morally free and still not big. Well, if under international law, it's really the case that these states
1: are all treated as equals, and that's a premise for Wolf. It's a premise for Wolf that international law must do that. And our present system of international law certainly doesn't do that. And the argument's been made over and over that the General Assembly in the UN could uh, you know, be given you know, binding power to uh, pass resolutions that people are actually expected to follow. And that if they don't follow them, then the UN might you know do something about it you know that would be to make the un into something that actually can can play the kind of role that a persian king of kings would play um, you know i'm not saying that you've got to go all the way in that direction but you would at least have to have international organizations in which the the poorer and weaker states have equal standing meaningfully equal standing not just superficially equal standing in rhetoric uh and we're not getting there. And I think a big reason why uh, many post colonial states have called for the General Assembly to have a bigger role is that they feel like it's not possible to get there under the current set of, of uh, institutional arrangements. They don't really think it will ever be possible, as long as some states are much more militarily powerful than others, for the weaker states to really be treated in international politics as equal players. And that's a, you know, the, International law with Wolff is this, on the one hand, this way of qualifying moralism, but on the other hand, it's this extremely moral structure because international law only works on the basis that states will act as if they're equal to each other, even though some of them are much richer and more powerful than others. And that's the really idealistic aspect to his theory of international law. On the one hand, he says oh, you can't moralize so much about who's right and who's wrong in war because that will lead to more violence. On the other hand, he says, you've got to act as if other states are equal to you under international law, even if they're not in terms of their wealth, in terms of their power, in terms of what they can do if they don't get their way. We've never had a world that's really followed that kind of
0: principle. But we have a lot of of people who pretend as if we do. Do you not think the teaching class has always done that? Because, yeah, whenever they have a student, they have unequal power, but they have to treat equally or at least fairly and redistribute something. Like maybe he's talking not about nations. He says the same applies to people. So,
1: well. Yeah, you know, I think I think the same probably does apply to people. We have many situations where you have interpersonal relationships where, in principle, you're equal to somebody, right? And, of course, in practice, you're not equal because they have much more money or more power than you do, and they can end the relationship in a way that puts you in a very bad position, and you can't do the same to them. And even though you all profess that you want to treat each other as equals and you don't want to exploit or take advantage of, you know, the, the other person doesn't want to exploit you or take advantage of you, they can profess that. Nevertheless, your knowledge that they could exploit or take advantage of you tends to have a chilling effect on your behavior and limit what you can do. You know, if you, you know, go out for drinks with your boss. Your boss may say, I want us to act like we're equal, and I'm going to treat you like you're my equal, even though I'm the boss and you're my employee. And he may mean that when he says it, right? But you can't be absolutely certain he's going to do that. And if you did take him seriously and you behaved really badly and you got really drunk and you said inappropriate things... He would claim that none of it mattered, but it would. And it would probably affect you at work in some way. Uh, And even if it wouldn't, you would be concerned that it would. And the fact that you got really drunk and said all of those things would affect your behavior going forward. right? So even when people say these things and they mean them when they say them, these power dynamics do tend to have consequences. And that's the idealistic thing about Wolf's system, is that nobody's commitment to international law could plausibly be strong enough for them to uh, really and totally suspend acting on the basis of these power differentials. International politics has always been marked by those power differentials.
0: Is it because he's applying something that's not like you and your boss going for a beer? It's more like you trying to learn something? as an individual and progress from premise to premise so that it makes sense to your own knowledge. That's the whole, yeah.
1: I think there was a real hope at the time that Wolf was writing that international law could come to mean something like this. You know, that it really could be taken seriously, at least for some set of states. It's also worth bearing in mind that the time that Wolf is writing, it's not clear that there's one or two states that are superpower states that have the ability to tilt the whole thing. European politics tended to involve uh, you know, balances of power, many different states that were uh, not completely equal to one another, but equal enough, close enough, certainly could get equal with the help of just one or two neighboring states in a pinch. You know, and not a situation where one state can just dictate what happens all over the place. You think about in the early 1700s, you had the War of Spanish Secession, where France tried to install a bourbon on the throne of Spain, a member of the French royal family on the throne of Spain, and and fuse France and Spain into one giant monarchy. And all the other states of Europe ganged up on France to prevent France from doing this. And while France was stronger individually than any of those states it was not so much stronger that it could impose this on all of them. And so ultimately, they had to make a deal. And in the deal, it became impossible for France and Spain to be united together as one super state. That's the kind of Europe in which Wolf is writing, in which you could imagine, at least among those states, some kind of acknowledgement that uh, even though there's some level of disparity, they're all equal enough to one another that maybe they could all get behind the same body of international law. And I think a lot of the way that we think about international law is an artifact of that. It's an artifact of that law of nations discourse that took place in a Europe where power was much more evenly distributed than it is in the world today, or than it was in the world you know, even immediately after World War II. Immediately after World War II, uh, power was not distributed uh, evenly at all. And yet we you know, created a system of international law that is meant in some way to be connected to or uh, you know, based upon this tradition of just war theory and law of nations and so on, that goes way back and comes out of a context when the distribution of power was really different. And therefore, the degree to which you could really imagine states treating each other as equals was higher than today,
0: or really, I think, than any time in the last 100 years. It was probably idealistic during the time as well, because... Even though, well, it was a balance of power system, but yeah, he claimed that, well, it's not a a practical assembly. It's just what they ought to think. You know, I've made a very weird and curious
1: argument. Generally it's argued that today we have a more liberal international order and that in previous centuries, things were more realist and dominated by power politics. But I've in some ways suggested the inverse by suggesting that because we have uh, uh, a unipolar or bipolar world in the 20th century that creates a very big power disparity between superpower states and regular states, uh, that actually you're much closer to having a world in which you could have something like international law in the 18th century. Because at that point, you have this balance of power. Uh, and you had more wars during that time because it was less clear what the pecking order was and, and how powerful states were relative to each other. But those wars during that time were more limited in scope generally um, because those states were, you know, European states were regarding each other as, as roughly equals. They weren't regarding one another as. As devils, or as you know, uh, uh, you know, outside of the the framework of ordinary you know of law, the wars were limited and and temporary. Yeah, even the very big wars, like the War of Spanish Secession, compared to say World War One and World War II, where you have this this more Schmidian friend enemy kind of thinking that we associate with, you know, this idea that one side is just and the other side is all is all wrong. I'm not sure if I'm right to make that suggestion. I might I might well be wrong. It's curious that I found myself going in that direction.
0: If that was true would that make something about wolf that's against the grain for his time?
1: I'm not sure that that would make uh, wolf against the grain for his time. I do think it's it suggests that there was something more, if we associate this kind of idea of international law with with a kind of liberal enlightenment, uh, you know, if it was the case that international law was more plausible in many ways at the point at which it was instituted. um, Okay, the other side of this, and it, it needs to be said, is that during this time it really was the case that many indigenous populations would be regarded as not capable of of in any way participating in law during this time many non-european populations couldn't possibly have been included in it because they would have been regarded as not having the concept of law in the appropriate sense or not uh, behaving in terms of law uh, now i don't think that would include say the ottoman empire but it would include uh, say sub-saharan africa or uh, the indigenous uh, peoples in the Americas or in parts of Asia, uh, many of them would probably be regarded at this time. I don't know if Wolf did though, Wolf personally. I would have to go and look to see if Wolf wrote anything about the colonies. I don't know. Well, he said the extends. Uh, certainly, Prussia didn't, Prussia didn't have much in the way of colonies at this time, so he would have had less reason to think about it than some other theorists of the period. Uh, but, now we're brushing up against the limits of, of what
0: I'm sure about, but I think I brushed over a section where he said the same law of nations applies, even if you can't travel to it. Immediately, it takes it's far and wide. So colonies. Yeah, do- I'm sure he would. I'm sure he
1: would say that in principle. I guess my question here is, with a lot of the early international law theory, there's this question about, say. Whether this theory is explicitly justifying colonization on the grounds that say indigenous peoples are not able to or, or were perceived as not being able to uh, follow international law. And in say Grotius, you get you know, all of this discussion about you know, different tribal populations not allowing freedom of movement, not allowing you know, certain uh, human behaviors and therefore behaving in an unnatural way. Right And a lot of the time when we talk about what's what's natural for human beings or what is human nature, if you say that some human beings behave in a way that's unnatural or against human nature against natural law, this becomes a way of demonizing those people as not fully human or or making it possible to regard them as barbaric in the way that Huns or Mongols are barbaric uh, are regarded as barbaric, and so far as wolf labeled Huns and Mongols as barbaric, there's a possibility that this could have been applied to, to uh, denigrate the capacities of peoples in, uh, people in many other parts of the world outside of Europe. Uh, so we might have, say, a more plausible body of international law internally within Europe. And I think this this is probably about the way it was. If you look at the way European states behaved in the 18th century, they treated each other in a a very uh, protocol-oriented way. There were all sorts of rules diplomatically for how European diplomats interacted with each other in the 18th century uh, and the 19th century. They they were very fastidious about the rules. I think much more fastidious about the rules than we are today. Uh, Much more obsessed with the rules and what the rules said you could or couldn't do in in many respects. Uh, At the same time, outside of Europe, they were much less concerned about the rules and much more willing to commit imperial atrocities, uh, imperialist atrocities all over the place. So in the 18th century, there is a sense in which there was uh, more international law than we have today. But in both cases, in both the 18th century and today, people outside of Europe are not getting properly included or incorporated in that. They're being pushed out of it and rendered uh, not fully human in in both, uh, both senses, I think. But it's done in different ways. It, it's done in different ways. Then it was done by saying, well, they, they don't even behave like states. They don't even have something that would constitute a state. They aren't uh, you know, following international law in such a way that you can regard them as peoples or, or as having states. And now the argument would be, well, they have states, but they uh, are still... Uh, Not following all the rules. You know, they're not following all the rules that the international organizations have laid out for them to follow. And so they've got states, but they're breaking the rules. Uh, And therefore you can do all sorts of things to them. You can punish them. You can run down their economies in all kinds of ways. Uh, Anytime I I start getting on the uh, the subject of the, the Formerly colonized parts of the world. I get very sad. I get very. When we did the episode on on uh, oil. And Freenas. I also got very sad. Uh, I didn't expect to, to come this way. On this particular episode. But, but that is where it's come. I just feel that. Political theory. Has just been totally unable. To really. Account at all for. For people in these other parts of the world, as much as I feel like we've done a bad job for poor and working people, we we haven't even really begun to account for meaningfully different worldviews or values that exist in other parts of the world. Uh, you know, to actually take those things seriously in anything but a kind of of orientalist way. You know, you have some people who become fixated on on demonizing the West and and valuing anything that. It, to them comes from outside the West, but that orientalizing further reifies the distinction between East and West and, and further reinforces this idea that that the not West is, is different from the West. Uh, at the same time, I'm not trying to suggest a, a, a universalism in which we just read everything through a Western lens. There needs to be some kind of way of of properly integrating things and properly understanding things together that doesn't subordinate. Um, But both when we have kind of a universalist perspective in the West that tends to be, well, everybody ought to think like a Westerner or or does already think like a Westerner or will think like a Westerner after they get the right institutions. And then the other side of the coin is this this Orientalist uh, attitude that says, well, everything that is non-Western is exotic and precious and, and must be cherished and can't be questioned, and we have to subordinate our critical thinking capacities to the veneration of it. Uh, and both of those things miss what, you know, insofar as we you know, do episodes on non-Western thinkers, I'm trying to do in this show, which is to take everybody in the world seriously as having things to say about what's good and having things to say about what is good order and, and what's a good way of, of living. Uh, everybody is having something to say about that, and to not think of that as a, a specifically Western or or non-Western thing. You know, just everybody cares about how we live. Everybody's got views about what's what's good and bad, right and wrong. That's not just a Western thing. Uh, that's an everybody thing, and, and to to honor the different ways of thinking that people people bring. Anyway. We're we're off topic and we're over the hour. So, thank you guys so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye bye.